Well, beloved listeners, we talk regularly, in fact, endlessly on the Little Wireless program about the, the state of politics in the US. But just south of the border, Mexico is entering a decisive period in its own political cycle in less than a year. Mexicans will head to the polls to elect a new president. The ruling party is expected to retain power, but the race is now on to find a successor to the president, AMLO, as he's affectionately called, the left-wing leader who's fast approaching the end of his six-year term. Meanwhile, Mexico continues to grapple with two great challenges, the expansive powers of the drug cartels and the flow of migrants to the US-Mexico border. Sarah Burke, B-I-R-K-E, is a senior journalist with extensive experience in the region and she's currently the Mexico City Bureau Chief for The Economist and joins us now from Mexico's capital. Welcome, Sarah. Remind us of the current state of play since uh, since he won in 2018, as I recall, with an anti-corruption agenda. That's right. So since 2018, we're now sort of five years into what is a six-year term. AMLO has been a controversial president. I mean, he has remained with very high approval ratings of around 65%. But there's a lot of criticism and disappointment about his policies and what he's actually delivered for Mexico. And that's particularly actually on security and crime, but also on corruption, some of his actions towards Mexico's institutions, such as the electoral body. Uh, So it's really been a very controversial term. And this makes this electoral period also very controversial. I understand that uh, he's proposed three constitutional reforms which have uh, raised eyebrows. That's right. So one was to change the electoral body, which really is credited by Mexicans for having helped them transition to democracy. I mean, it's worth reminding listeners that power only changed hands in 2000 for the first time after 71 years of rule by the PRI. And he's proposed cutting it down, cutting its budget, cutting its sort of professional workforce. Now, these reforms have actually been rejected by the Supreme Court, which the president is not very happy about. So that's one set of constitutional reforms. Another one has been he created a new federal police force, which was from the get-go very militarized. It was mainly policed or populated by army members. And then he tried to pass it to the hands of the army. And the Supreme Court again said, no, you can't do this. So this is a sort of repetitive pattern of his rule as well, is really trying to push through these very big reforms that touch matters in the constitution. And the Supreme Court saying, uh, no. He promised uh, freedom of expression, of religion and uh, the right to dissent. Did he deliver? I mean, you know, Mexican is, Mexico is a very noisy country. There is lots of dissent. There is lots of criticism. There is lots of, you know, arguments. Uh, so, you know, it's not like we see in Central America where people with dissenting opinions are hounded and run out of the country. 
But having said that, the president really sets the agenda. And he does this because he has a daily press conference every single morning, and it often lasts several hours. And in it, he really turns on his critics. Uh, you know, he will either expose their finances, or he will <laughs> criticize them for other things. I mean, so, you know, while there is freedom of press, it's really, it's not a sort of pleasant playing field. But Sarah, that fact that he's had a thousand uh, morning press conferences, must get him in the Guinness Book of Records. One would think so. I mean, you also have to wonder where he finds the time to run the country when he spends so much time standing up in the morning uh, talking to, uh, I mean, who knows who listens to it, but lots of people, including myself. Sarah, would you be kind enough to mark his homework? What are his main achievements and failures? It's pretty difficult to find good success stories. I mean, there are some things he's not done badly. Uh, he's kept the economy going very well. For example, the Mexico's macroeconomic situation is, is very good. But having said that, there's a sort of glass half empty side to this too, which is that some of his policies, in particular, uh, supporting the national oil and electricity companies at the expense of clean energy have meant that businesses have many of them said you know what we'd like to invest in mexico but we're not going to and this is a repetitive pattern with him things that he's done well where you say yeah it's kind of okay but it could have been a lot better so social handouts again you know he's done lots of them they're not terrible some of them you know a, a pension for old people has is thought the statistics are sort of lagging uh, but it's thought to be helping alleviate poverty among elderly folk but at the same time, it's at the expense of scrapping all sorts of previous social handout schemes that, you know, were really working pretty well before. So this is a repetitive thing that he comes in, scraps things and replaces them often with something less good. I have to say, if he was in Australia, he'd be wildly applauded for increasing <laughs> the minimum wage by 20% and paid That's vacation true. days doubled. That's true. I mean, yes, very good point. I'm glad you brought that up. That is probably, if anything, his the, the best thing he has done. I mean, that Mexican, the, the minimum wage really has helped a lot of people. I mean, it's worth remembering that an awful lot of workers, about 60% in Mexico are in the informal sector. So that doesn't apply to them. But of course, by pushing up wages in the formal sector, it also drags up, one would think, the informal sector too. So that really has been an excellent policy. And it doesn't seem to have caused inflation like some people so you're right, there are things to celebrate. His critics, however, point to several things. I mean, they point generally to his attacking of uh, institutions, which we mentioned earlier, and the sort of centralizing of power and criticizing of his opponents and generally polarizing Mexico. Uh, there's also sort of criticism on almost every area of policy you look at that health and education haven't had enough spending, uh, that the reforms haven't worked. Uh, and I think those criticisms are valid. So it's really a bit of a mixed bag, uh, probably erring on the, oh dear, this wasn't a brilliant term. And I think particularly people are disappointed because they had very high hopes. You know, this was a guy who came in with huge political capital, lots of promises, and he just hasn't delivered what people thought he was going to. I, re I remember being quite impressed with him from time to time in the way he confronted Trump. Yes. I mean, he had a very interesting relationship with Trump. I mean, you have to, it's true. It's, you know, he doesn't really care what people think of him. So that means that often with the likes of Trump, he's sort of more honest than some other leaders might have been.
Okay, now the president in Mexico these days gets one six-year term. Who, Sarah Burke, are the uh, likely contenders? Well, really, the bets are that Morena, the party of the president, is going to win. So whoever their candidate is, is, is likely to be the next president. And there are four people running. There are of varying degrees of sort of uh, popularity. The president's favorite and the one leading in the polls, and that's no coincidence, is uh, Claudia Scheinbaum. So she was until about a week ago the mayor of Mexico City. And she would be, if she were to win, you know, the first female president of Mexico. So she's leading. And then a sort of another contender who's coming second is Marcelo Ibrard, who's the former foreign minister who also stepped down. They all had to resign their post to, to run. Uh, and he's he's coming second. He's sort of a safe pair of hands, but is not the president's favorite. And then there's a couple of others who are sort of less well known. And then on the opposition side, really, it's sort of an, an empty sheet. No one really knows. There are a bunch of names uh, there, some people who've said they'll run, but no one with the sort of clout or the popularity that any of the Morena candidates have. Claudia has a few problems, doesn't she? She's uh, She's got her own issues as mayor. Well, she's actually been considered to have done a pretty good job. So she ran the city relatively competently. She's improved public transport. During COVID, she deviated very clearly from the national sort of who cares, let's pretend this isn't happening approach and actually put in COVID tests and masks and all sorts of things. But yeah, she does have problems. I mean, first of all, those who don't like the president say rightly that she's become very close to him and sort of parroted him in more recent times. And then also she's she's suffered from a metro accident in 2021, if I'm not wrong. It might have been 2022, in which a, a part of the track fell down and killed uh, maybe it was 20 odd people. And that was partly considered to have been because of a lack of maintenance under her administration. Although it's also pinned on Ibrard, the other candidate, because it was built during his term when he was mayor of Mexico City. Before the last election, Mexico had been dominated by two political parties, the PAN and the PRI. What happened to these two big parties in the last few years, Sarah? Well, they've really not come to terms with why they're so disliked and why AMLO is so popular. So really, they're sort of not really in the picture anymore. Now, they have formed a coalition together, but also with the PRD, which is another party. In fact, it was Mr. López Obrador's previous party. And so this coalition is sort of an uneasy alliance of parties that are really quite different. So they don't really have a good policy agenda. They don't really have anyone as a candidate or really many politicians that people admire. So they're almost a sort of non-entity. And they're really sort of pushing themselves as with the alternative, with a no vote to to Morena. So it's more of a negative than a, a positive message. Now, that's not to say they're completely worthless. In 2021, there were midterm elections and there was a lot of unhappiness uh, in certain parts of the country, especially, especially urban areas. And so they did gain votes. And there's also another leftist party, very progressive, called Citizen Movement. And that's sort of gaining power. It has two big governorships. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 
if anything, the most up and coming, interesting party. But it's still considered so small that lots of voters don't consider it to be an option. Now, while we're talking power, we must talk about the power of the drug cartels. How have they adapted to the presidency? I mean, this is just an ongoing nightmare for Mexico, where every year, regardless of who's in the presidency, these groups sort of splinter and grow in power and increase the activities that they do. So, you know, you call them drug cartels, and many of them do deal in drugs, but you have hundreds of gangs across the country now doing extortion, uh, controlling agricultural trade, peddling drugs, making fentanyl, dealing with human smuggling. I mean, it's really a mess. So the president at least at the start of his term, his take was, well, it's hugs, not bullets. And the idea was he would tackle the social roots of uh, crime. So for him, a lot of that is to do with poverty and exclusion. And that's all very well. It's unclear what he's really been doing on that. But obviously, there's social handouts and there are various things that he's thinking about. But when it comes to actually tackling the cartels and gangs that exist today, there was at the start at least a very sort of hands-off attitude. And this allowed the groups to continue about their business and continue growing as they had been. But but there was something interesting that happened in May when Mexico introduced a law applying strict controls on the import of chemicals used by the gangs to make uh, synthetic drugs. Now, in recent years, in the sort of last 18 months, we've seen a bit of a a change, potentially from pressure from the US. So yes, there's been more of a a sort of going after kingpins in uh, uh, cooperation with the Americans. And like you say, this law that they introduced was really one sort of world class. I mean, American diplomats here admit that, that the controls on the import of precursors to make fentanyl are now very, very strict. So now there seems to be a bit more oomph in the policy, a bit more of what can we do? How do we tackle the financial networks behind these? How do we tackle fentanyl, which is obviously a huge issue between Mexico and the US. We learn from your writing an appalling fact that 25 people disappear every day in Mexico. A growing proportion are 12 to 15 year old girls. It's absolutely horrific. I mean, I think since I wrote that piece, the number has gone up to more than that. And yes, this is a sort of changing uh, panorama for disappearances, where now it's a lot of younger girls who are thought to be smuggled into prostitution, as opposed to before when it was men, often young as well, who were thought to have either been involved in gang warfare or just disappeared for being mistaken identity. But yes, it's changing and in really horrific ways. We were discussing on the program a few days ago the the possibility, perhaps a little under fifty percent, that Trump gets back into power, and on the top of his list, he's going to double down on the Mexican wall, which reminds us of this other humanitarian tragedy, which is uh, Mexico's border with the U.S. What's happening? in Mexico since the end of the COVID-era border restrictions? It's a very influx situation, but you have a lot of migrants who are stuck here, who are on their way to the US and now with stricter controls. uh, You know, if you try and cross now and you're caught, that's it. You're barred for several years from applying for legal immigration status, whereas before you could just keep trying. So you see an awful lot of migrants now 
in Mexico, in limbo. I mean, even in Mexico City now, uh, you see camps of, say, Haitians. There are many more people around. It's not just at the northern border like it used to be. I mean, the Mexicans have actually been very, very cooperative with the US. And really, it's just one of those issues where there are so many people who are trying to move, and not just from within Latin America, but also you see a lot of Chinese, Indians, Russians coming up through the region, that it's a very tricky issue. And and you see it day to day in Mexico. I've got to ask you this, Sarah, what drew you to uh, Mexico? I have to say, I've only actually been here for three years, um, two and a half years. Before that, I was in Japan and I was in the Middle East for eight years. Um, But I was drawn to the region. My husband is half Costa Rican. So we've always had a a sort of connection to the region and uh, a lot of Spanish uh, going on in our household. And it's just a fascinating country with so many issues and one that's also very neglected. You know, we talk an awful lot about the US, but really not very much about Mexico when I find it very central to so many of these issues uh, of imports that we've just been talking about, you know, crime, drugs, migration, all sorts of things. What's, What's daily life like for you in Mexico City? I mean, Mexico City is, at least in the central neighbourhoods, very pleasant. It's a place where you've seen a lot of people from the US moving down during the pandemic to be digital nomads. It's sort of a hidden gem, but not so hidden anymore. Um, But, you know, once you go out of these areas, Mexico is... It's like a patchwork of places. Every place is different. Some are safe, some are not. Um, Some are charming, some are not. It's really, you know, very different, depends on, on, on where you are. But the Mexican people are just sort of wonderful and lively and welcoming and have lots of opinions. So it really makes day-to-day life here and my job as a reporter incredibly uh, interesting. Well, you're pretty lively yourself, Sarah, and full of opinions, which have been great to listen to. My guest has been Sarah Burke, B-I-R-K-E, Bureau Chief for The Economist in Mexico City. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks for having me. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.